0: Is there inerrant evil in a person, or are there always circumstances that lead to something evil happening?
1: I think that there are places in the world where the veil is thinner than others. In this episode of The Brothers Grimm, special guest Seth Hardy brings us a special Halloween-themed episode all the way from the bayou down in New Orleans.
2: Well, this is a very special episode of the Brothers Grimm Podcast. We have our very first special guest. Not only is, is this a special guest, but this is also our Halloween special episode. So I'd like to welcome Seth Hardy, who will be delighting us with a, a tale of his own. And uh, Jeremy, Brian, and I get to kind of take a take a back seat and take a listen.
1: This is going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm glad to be
2: here. So tell us a little bit, I mean, I'd I'd like to know before you dive into your story, like why, why are you drawn into this type of, to these types of stories, to the paranormal or the, the unsolved true crimes? What kind of drew you into those types of stories?
0: My mom watched nothing but true crime TV pretty much my entire life. And that's, that's all we watched. So I was exposed, uh, no, she, she loves to watch, she calls them killings and watching those all the time. So just seeing that stuff and then the paranormal stuff, you know, just kind of the mystery
3: of it all, I think is what, um, I think that's what draws a lot of people into this is just the unknown answers. Yep. So t- tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where are you from? You know, what are you doing now or what do you do?
0: Yeah, I, um, am from South Georgia, a town called Moultrie. I grew up there and currently reside in Kennesaw. Um, Been living there for about three years now. Um, Work at a church in Kennesaw called North Star. And uh, that's how I got to know Brian and uh, Jeremy. And then through Brian and Jeremy, uh, I got to meet Joey. So
2: Does Moultrie have like any of their own? I mean, that's not what today is about, but does Moultrie have any of its own like ghost stories or?
0: Yeah, there was this like bridge down the street from my house that was supposedly haunted. If you went there at a certain point at night, it was like an old rickety wooden bridge on a dirt road that you probably wouldn't want to drive over anyway because it's not going to support the weight of your vehicle. Um, But there were a few things like that. And there are also, you know, there are places. And there was a house downtown that was supposedly haunted, but. Um, my family was very religious growing up, so we did not give the devil a foothold. And uh, so Amen. We, we didn't think of any of that stuff. So it was always, you know, my mom was definitely, uh, you know, rebuking the the scary movie trailers on the television and, and things like that. So I didn't delve too much into it. But I think every small town has some sort of, of story and um, there's a kind of a part of the nature of being in a small community where everyone knows everybody. There's going to be some stories that make their way around. And um, so that's kind of part of it.
3: And you're uh recently engaged, correct?
0: Indeed. Yes, ladies, he's taken. We're all sorry. Yes, I'm taken. Um, I just hate it for you all. So my fiance Kylie, um, she's a teacher, and she is absolutely the biggest – like you know the word cinephile, like she's the biggest Halloweenophile I've ever met. Um, nice. When we first started dating around October, we had been dating for probably four weeks, and I went over to her apartment. And she had freaking flying skulls hanging from the ceiling. I was like, "Oh boy, what have I gotten myself into?"
3: So your parents were super excited yeah, when you brought super, her home. Super huh?
0: excited. Um, you know, she was she was she's great. She loves Halloween. Um, Them all kind of Halloween film, Halloween. Um, poltergeist all of those like classic halloween movies she watches the movie hocus pocus honest to god every single day the month of october so i've uh i've gotten my fill of that um but yeah so and we we watch a lot of scary stuff together as well actually this story that i'll be talking about today um we saw on a one of those kind of kitschy ghost shows that we watched together and um it was very disturbing. So those that's are usually the it. best. Yeah.
3: Those are really good.
2: Yeah, the disturbing the more disturbing the better, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think when you can be disturbed through the sort of cheese of those cable TV ghost shows, it tells you that this the the content behind the story was, was pretty was pretty messed up. So I'm looking forward to sharing.
2: So real quick before we dive in, what is when you think back to your childhood, what's like your favorite Halloween costume that you've, did you eat, did your mom let you do Halloween?
0: We did Halloween. We lived in a very rural area. So we did not have a traditional Halloween experience to where you would go door to door trick or treating because we just didn't have a lot of neighbors. (laughs) So, um, my, I have a few memories of dressing up as a kid. Um, but we really didn't do a lot of Halloween. We did the more like trunk or treat type stuff at church just because we didn't have any, um, a neighborhood per se to go and, and trick or treat in. But I will say, um, without question, my favorite Halloween costume I have ever donned was a couple of years ago for a for a Halloween party. I wore a black morph suit and <laughs> went as someone else's shadow. I remember this. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that unfortunately, was unfortunately I remember yeah, this. That was, that, best, um, that was my best. That uh, was my best. My best Halloween costume. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a specific memory of of growing up with any kind of any kind of costume. I'm probably your standard.
3: Dude, that's a good topic. Uh, Jeremy,
1: what's, uh, what was yours? So when we were younger, Joey and I, my parents would dress us up. Um, it would be more theme costumes. So the two of us would, uh, not, we wouldn't be twins, but it would be within the same genre. And one year, so just for the <laughs> listeners out there, I've always been bigger than my brother. Um, like I, I've always been a, just a, a, maybe a, We're about the same height now, but I've always just been a larger guy than Joey. And so one Halloween, I just had my heart set on being Peter Pan. No, no, no. You weren't. This is. No, yes. I was Peter Pan and you were Captain Hook. I remember the picture vividly in my mind because Captain Hook was a head and a half shorter than me. (laughs) Very small. And I was sitting there in a green outfit with green tights on. The biggest Peter Pan
0: you ever (laughs) seen. (laughs) showed up. I thought you
2: were supposed to be Robin Hood.
1: No, I was Peter Pan, <laughs> and you were Captain Hook, and so that would probably be my favorite uh, one as a child, and then my favorite one as an adult was when I dressed up like Zach Galifianakis from The Hangover. Oh man, you look uh, so good, complete man. with man purse, white pants, and graphic tee. It was beautiful. That's but you awesome. know, we
2: kept the uh, the themed brothers dressed together going into adulthood one one year we did mario and luigi for a halloween party i was luigi and jeremy was mario and it was probably it was pretty perfect
3: it sounds really good it sounds like it would be a good
1: if i didn't realize how tight overalls were until i put them on and i bought the biggest pair that i could find from walmart (laughs) and i still couldn't button the top side button
3: well uh mine mine's super embarrassing um i let my parents i think it was my parents i let my parents. Talk me into being a black-eyed P, um, and like, so like the band or no, the food. Unfortunately, neither. He was Fergie. Unfortunately, it was a. I painted a black eye over my eye, and then I had a large P screen printed on my oh, shirt. Boy. You went too smart. And the only only people that got it were the adults. All the kids are like, what are you? I'm not going to lie. That's pretty awful. How old? (laughs) It was so bad. Uh, God, I was probably 13, 14 maybe. It was bad. I don't know why I let them do that. Oh, boy.
1: I'm curious to know what everybody's favorite Halloween memory is, our most memorable Halloween memory. I'll go with one from childhood. So, uh, you know, we were trick-or-treating one night, and we lived in a really hilly neighborhood growing up. And I I remember Joey made it to the top of this really steep driveway, and there was nobody visible uh, mm. out there giving candy. It was just a scarecrow holding the bat, you know, the basket of candy. And the owner of the house had dressed up like the scarecrow and jumped at Joey when he went to grab candy. And I, I, if I remember correctly, Joey came sprinting down the driveway <laughs> in tears. I think he fell down at the bottom I, of I the I rolled driveway. down the rest of the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> and it scared just the living crap out of him. I'm
2: pretty sure our dad, like, raged on the guy afterwards. Oh, very much so. Yeah. God, was so traumatizing. It
1: was. I don't I'm like sorry. people dressed
0: up as characters, even to today.
1: Seth, what about you?
0: I will go sentimental here. Um Partly because I just didn't have a ton of Halloween memories of actually trick or treating or anything, but my grandmother lived in a a small. The way that the the place that I grew up was there is a main town, and then there are these very small kind of communities dotted around the county around it that aren't really towns, but they're big enough to have like a post office and a gas station, but you know not much bigger than that. But my grandmother lived in one of those towns, and um, we would go. And hang out with her, and sit on her porch, and give candy out to the kids because there it was more of a neighborhood feel. So I remember going and um, and doing that with her, and that uh, was a, a fond memory. She's since passed away, but that was a uh, I remember doing that it was really nice. That's lovely. Bring a little joy, bring a little love and joy to the pod here before we bring it back down, and before we bring it way back well, down. I
2: have one memory specifically that has to do with Brian. In Halloween. Oh, no. <laughs> so, what was it? A year, maybe two years ago? Two years ago. Two years ago, we, Jeremy and I, wanted to go to a haunted house.
3: I'm trying to remember which one this one was. And
2: we invite Brian along, and we're like, hey, Brian, let's go to a haunted house. He's like, can't. Oh, my bad. <laughs> and we say, that's fine. He says something along the lines of, I'm staying in tonight. Okay. So, we accept it. Jeremy and I decide, let's go anyway. So, we go to Folklore in Ackworth, a uh, haunted house in Ackworth, and... We're waiting in line and lo and behold, who is standing in a couple, a couple people in front of us, but Brian with a different group of friends.
1: I'm sorry.
0: And, and
2: we truly catch am sorry. him and a lie so hard.
1: Joey and I just wow. stand there and look at him. for. We just stare <laughs> at daggers in his back from behind, just waiting for him to turn around.
3: I think y'all were there for several minutes, right,
1: before... Oh. Classic Brian.
3: We were there for at least a few
2: minutes just staring at you, waiting for you to notice that we were behind okay. you. I and think I'll, we may have even
1: texted you a couple times while we were there. Probably. And you never responded no, to you, us. No, you I'm did the like, whole look at your phone and it, put it back yeah, in you your pocket. We watched you look at your phone and put it back in your pocket.
3: Look, I, I like to bring my different friend groups together. Nope. My other friend groups do not like that. So it was a, they had asked me first. We've, we've forgiven him
2: by now. And Brian doesn't lie to us anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I should not have lied.
0: That was good. Yeah.
1: Our friend group is notorious for always catching the other in an act where either we forgot to call somebody or we didn't invite them. And lo and behold, they always show the person that's not invited always shows up where we are. And then it's super awkward. I remember one time we went out to lunch, a bunch of us, and it was going to be a really quick lunch to Chick-fil-A. And yeah, we, we didn't invite Joey because we just didn't think about it. He doesn't work with us um, like at the place. And so we were like, let's just go grab a quick lunch. we got to go do a site visit. And as we were getting in our car to leave Chick-fil-A's parking lot, Joey is standing on this little hill just looking at us. He had just gotten there with this face of like, thanks for the invite, jerks. It was
3: like a sad little puppy. As if we were just leaving him at home.
1: Always. It always happens in our friend group. It's, it's embarrassing. Yeah.
3: But we, we're we good about calling each other out about it and keeping yeah, us humble. For sure. I had FOMO hard that day. It's fine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let's dive into it. Seth, tell us a little bit about your uh, your story. I, I can't wait to hear it.
0: Yeah. So I love stories that play with the idea, is there inerrant evil in a person or are there always circumstances that lead to something evil happening, um, if that makes any sense? And this is a story of that where something very insidious has occurred and we are left to decipher whether or not there were some sort of malevolent um, entity being responsible or malevolent presence being responsible or Is it just another situation of real life issues and real life mess breaking down a person to a point to where they go off the rails and do something really, really bad? So guys, this is a story of a Cajun couple gone wrong. It's the story of Addie Hall and Zach Bowen, a couple who lived in the French Quarter of New Orleans in the time around 2006. So Addie was a poet, artist, lived in the French Quarter area. Um, free spirit, had some issues of her own with drugs and, and different things. And she met this guy named Zach, who was a guy who had been married before, had some kids, had some busted up relationships. A dude who had been in the army, and um, served overseas in Iraq. Um, Kosovo, a couple other places, and is back in the States in the French Quarter with severe PTSD and a lot of issues of his own. So these two meet each other and kind of strike up a relationship in 2006. And they meet and they begin this relationship right around the time of probably one of the most historic events in the city of new orleans louisiana hurricane katrina so they meet each other and they um in their newfound love ride out hurricane katrina together in the city of new orleans as we all know all of the things and the destruction um that that wrought
3: i went to or i went to new orleans shortly after that i don't know joe if you're on that trip but i was um we we went there and it was the destruction was devastating that entire town like Kind of east of the French Quarter and all of that, it was just absolutely destroyed. Insane.
0: Yeah, I mean, every good Christian went on a mission trip to uh, yep. to New Orleans that after is Hurricane true. Katrina is to, help, true. to help rebuild. But um, yeah, so these guys were there. Um, they made it through Hurricane Katrina. They lived in a very small apartment in the French Quarter And as they continued on in their relationship, um, I think a lot of the issues that they both brought to the table began to manifest themselves and things started to break down and being together and confined, almost quarantine-ish, kind of what we've been in over the past few months. Um, the cracks start to show in any relationship especially an unhealthy one and with people who have issues with drugs and and other mental illness Um, aside from the PTSD there were some other mental illness uh, issues I think Zach struggled with and after a time in their relationship they began to break down and this is when the evil starts to creep in And, uh, and one night Zach strangled and killed Addie in their very small apartment in the french quarter and killed her dead choked her out in a drunken state did some things that are unmentionable on the pod but you can probably guess i
2: want to know what those things are you'll have to share after
0: oh yeah so i will share i will share afterwards but um And all of this was just a culmination of a busted relationship and a lot of violence. And I think there was a lot of violence that went on before that. And it all came to a head and he killed her. And the next part of the story is where it goes off the rails. Because after he had um, killed her, this was on October 5th, he strangled her to death, left her body in their apartment, went out, kind of did life for a little bit, and then over the next several days, proceeded to dismember her body and place it in various areas around the apartment. In a pot on the stove was her head, charred beyond recognition. All of this was done in the bathroom in the apartment. She was dismembered in the bathroom. Different limbs were put in roasting dishes inside the oven. There were parts of her body that were dismembered, um, also both in the fridge, and in the freezer. There are even some reports from investigators that there were some sort of, shall I say, seasonings added to to the dismemberments. But there's not quite any um, evidence to indicate that it was actually for consumption. Maybe more of a uh, intent to to break down break down the body a little bit more. But so um, so you.
3: You said he already he had some other mental illnesses before the PTSD occurred.
0: I think the main issues that he suffered from were PTSD from his service time, and okay. a lot of the the more, shall I say, academic um, reasonings behind what he he has done or he had did to her would be linked to the to issues from the war and I know there are millions of people in the country that struggle with PTSD every day and you know, some learn to cope and learn to live with it and then there's just some people who just can't. And that's a really big a really big issue. So the a more academic response to, to these actions would be that he succumbed to um, mental degradation from PTSD and other things. But there are a few other layers that, that we would would like to take into consideration.
2: I mean that might sound enough to like for him to strangle her and maybe do unspeakable things to her sure, dead yeah. body, but the dismemberment is a little unnecessary.
3: Yeah, like th- that's where I'm like okay, it goes past the PTSD. Right. And there's something else has to be underlying.
0: And we will see as we as we move forward. So she sat in the house for up to 2 weeks in her d- different States before some of her friends and um, and such kind of reported you know like what's going on I haven't seen her and such and they knew there had been um, she had been talking to some of her friends that they had had some issues with their you know abusive relationships and things of that nature um, but on uh, this was a couple weeks later on October the 17th 26 uh, 2006 he um, committed suicide by jumping from the top of a building. And in the pocket of his um, of his jacket, he left a note for the police, to the police only, that led them to um, their home and to the landlord of the property for questionings and, and all of those things. And then that's when they were able to find. The police were able to start um, to find some of the some of the the dismemberment. And all the things of that nature. And this is some of what um, the letter said. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a control car, a patrol car to a two North Rampart, you will find dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, on the stove, in the fridge, and a fully signed confession from myself. That's all it said. This was a part of it, and there were also other, um, other things from like a journal and some other entries that, that were, you know, kind of elaborated a little bit more on the specifics of the matter, but that was what was in there um, for the police. And, um, and when they got there, they found uh, the journal. Um, it was actually Addie's journal that he had made some writings in mm. um, talking about um, when he killed her and some of the, um, you know, so he journaled his thoughts after he did it? Yeah, so this is something that is on on a site. It's an excerpt um, from the journal. Halfway through the task, I stopped and thought about what I was doing, the decision, the halt, the first idea I moved to plan B, the crime scene that you are in now. So that was to say that plan B is what wound up happening, that there was a different plan A to what initially happened, which God only knows. That's weird. Um, scared myself not by the action of strangling my lover, Uh, for over a year and a half years and then desecrating her body Uh, but by his lack of remorse and um, he's known forever how horrible a person he was and you can ask anyone and then goes on to list some of the things that he did wrong Um, and then um, no relationship with his family and you know how his life kind of went down the went down the drain and talked about how he enjoyed all of the bad things that he had done, but it was that time. And there was a report that he burned himself, before he killed his wife, he burned himself with a cigarette 28 times once for the year, every year that he was alive, to indicate that he was, you know, how useless he was or how bad he felt. Um, Man, like, not itself. to not to take away
3: from the fact that he killed his girlfriend, but man, it sounds like he was just struggling with a lot of just Mm -hmm. issues. And, like, it's very, very sad that he also was going through that depression or whatever it may be.
0: And on its face, if that were the end of the story, so to speak, you could definitely deduce that this is a person who is extremely mentally ill and through probably a mixture of mental illness and drug use, acted on impulses and did some very bad things. However, there's another layer to the story, and that is the fact that their apartment was located above a voodoo spiritual temple that was founded in 1990 by a couple of um, voodoo priests and priestesses in New Orleans on Rampart Street.
2: Seth, you holding out on us, man.
0: Holding out some some key details.
3: Yeah, now, now you have my attention.
0: So, that begs the question of our current circumstance and our current story that we're in here are there chances that there were some entities that were malevolent that made their way up from the voodoo temple below to the apartment above I will preface that statement with this the voodoo priests and priestess according to all accounts are very well respected in that community and there are no um, explicit things to say that they may have had something to do with it. However, on the other hand, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Well, of course you're going to
2: respect your local voodoo priest and priestess. I'm not going to... I'm not going to mess with them. I'm not going to mess with them. <laughs> Highly respectful.
1: Yeah, I don't want them making a doll of me. And uh, <laughs> Right. Uh, no way. Yeah, whether you believe in that or not, no way. you do not want to... I'm even, not going to tempt it.
3: Yeah, don't go there. Mm-mm. Now, I wait, do not, think
1: that you know when... You get in situations where you're in proximity to um, paranormal activity, even if you're not the one either practicing or participating in. uh, I do think that there is some bleed over. Um, It's like when you use really bad painter's tape. And, you know, you put the the tape on the wall and you paint over it and there's going to be bleed over. And so you have to wonder if – what was going on in the apartment below just seeped into their apartment and affected mental states that were already compromised to begin with.
3: Yeah, it definitely couldn't help the situation. No, that reminds
2: me of what uh I don't know if anybody's familiar with Lorraine Warren, who's her and her husband were famed demonologists and uh, you know, responsible the for the originals, responsible for accounting cases like Amityville horror and stuff. And uh, That she, doll,
0: they messed around with that doll too, didn't they? They did. See,
2: nope. She she said that, that very rarely, in a, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase her, but very rarely in a happy home will spirits attach themselves to. Uh, it's only in broken, it's typically in broken homes or homes where there's hardship, where a spirit is more likely to attach itself to somebody in that home. And then she also followed it up with saying, just don't mess with that kind of stuff. That's my paraphrase
3: See, that that right there reminds me of the whole strangers thing why did you mess with them yeah because they were home yeah that's the only reason like those type of reasons are what
0: bother me and you think that if you believe that um you know malevolent entities have influence on people that the people who they would be able to influence and infiltrate their brains are people who are at a weakened mental state and someone with mm-hmm. severe depression yep. PTSD um you know injuries from from being you know In in the war, they're definitely susceptible to that. But which leads us back to the question at the beginning is, do we think that that is a possibility? That there were some sort of outside circumstances that affected the the decision-making of this individual? Or was there just some inherent evil in this guy that led him to commit such unspeakable acts because I think there is a line between, you know, the way that he would you know strangling someone and then also the the more gruesome stuff there. I think there's something to be said for that's real evil there.
1: I mean I think somebody that, that commits something like that or engages in that sort of activity does have some dormant, inherent, you know, inklings towards that. I don't think that, you know, one day you're loving and fine and the next day, you know, a switch is flipped. Now, it could be. I've never suffered from PTSD. I've never served in the military. Um, I've known plenty of people who have. But I would find it hard to believe you just go from zero to 100 over nothing.
2: Unless you're possessed. I mean, possession is a... Would be, I mean, if you believe in, in demonic possession or in human spirits, then, like, demonic possession could be a way for somebody to go from never commit a crime to dismembering a person.
1: Yeah, I mean, something would have to completely take over your faculties. You know, shift your mentality, almost uh, assume the driver's seat in your brain. Um. So, I mean, if you look at every famed serial killer in history, most of them either came from an upbringing that fostered that sort of brokenness and, you know, fractured psyche or something happened to them, whether paranormal or not, that flipped that switch from nice and loving to psychotic
3: Is there anything in the kind of suicide note that he may have kind of hinted at or pointed you to believe
0: something else was going on with him? I think it was very direct, Um, more black and white than any sort of shades of gray that we're operating in through this conversation. Do we know what, like, kind of some of the details that he
2: scribbled into the journal at all? Like, what were some of the things that he did? beforehand that made him think he was a bad person?
0: Well, I think you're talking about a person who has, he had a a previous marriage that had failed, a wife with children that had left him, Uh, drug abuse, inability to keep employment, um, just kind of struggling on that rat race kind of, um, indulging in a lot of inappropriate behavior. And I think over the time, when those things build up, and you have depression, you you get really low on yourself, and, uh, and I think that's where he was. Um, and then after that was just the tipping point. After the the stuff with with his with Addie had happened, it was just you know, broken homes.
3: Those are always the worst when either the father or the mother aren't there. It's it's never easy, by any means.
1: Yeah, and not to say that every kid that comes from a broken home is susceptible to turning into a, a serial killer or a monster, but I mean, you know, when you when you you know it, this is saying you know you, you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Ultimately, you may not get burned the first, the second, the third, or the fourth time, but the fifth time, you set your house on fire. And so, you know, granted, they weren't the ones necessarily probably practicing the voodoo they weren't the ones, you know, actively doing anything, but you know, it's like it's like what we're dealing with right now with the the pandemic, you know, there are there's a population of the people who are highly susceptible and highly at risk to catching the disease no matter what precautions they take. Yeah, and that
3: could have
1: ultimate issues. Yeah. With that. So I mean somebody who is dealing with prior, you know, trauma and stress who's dealing with broken relationships, who's dealing with all this stuff, coupled with the fact that you're, you know, quarantined inside with someone for an extended amount of time, you know, add that in with whatever is happening with the voodoo shop underneath. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to be a little bit of a recipe for disaster to somebody who's not operating at 100% mentally.
2: I also think, though, personally, I just think that, you know, some people... I think almost all people have the ability to become unhinged if they allow themselves to go that far. Or if they are not taking care of themselves physically, mentally and and not bettering themselves, then they're becoming more susceptible to their own, you know, their own personal demons of, you know, hating themselves or feeling like failures and just never, never dealing with it. And when it all finally bubbles over, you just unleash that, that hate for yourself. And sometimes it goes towards the closest person.
3: Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, we've all been, probably been there where we've lost our cools or we've let things change who we really are at the core. And, uh, you know, I've, I've lost my temper one too many times, you know, and very at, true at Joey. Yeah, at one point, <laughs> but you know, if you're not like you said, if you're not taking care of yourself mentally or physically or spiritually, you're 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 gonna struggle regardless.
0: When We talk about the you know demonic entities; those always aren't in the force in the form of a, what you would traditionally think of a demonic entity as being, you know, the demons of of those things like you talked about of the depression and the, the self-loathing and um, the demons from time and war, which by all accounts is one of the worst things that a person can go through. I think that this is a person who had a lot on their plate and, like we've all said, was susceptible um, to snapping, whether that was caused by by something paranormal or not. To speak to the paranormal realm in the years since, which is fairly recent 2006 you know just over over 10 years ago the apartment has remained off and on um, rented and a lot of paranormal stuff has happened there over the course of that time Um, voices very heavy being in that place you know I watched a a video of some investigators that went in there and one of the ladies was more um, attuned to that kind of thing and made the, the comment that that was, was the heaviest place she had ever been in. And there were a lot of residuals from what had happened in that space even years later in situations where horror and trauma have occurred that those that those experiences live on to a certain degree um, in the feeling of a place like that and it's been um, a very hot spot paranormal place after the fact the voodoo place is no longer under there it moved up the street to a different place but even in the fact that um, that that kind of catalyst was removed that there are still happenings linked to that place lets you know that something really bad went on there I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You've all been in in
3: an area or space or situation where you've just felt a dark
1: just feeling just of like, hey, something isn't right here. Yeah, I mean, I think that the spirit world and the material world, I think, are separated by uh, a thin veil um, as far as coexistence in the same space. And, you know, I, I do think that when you end up with Situations like this, um, places where horrific, just ungodly things happen to somebody, I do think that that veil becomes just a little bit thinner. Demonic presence was allowed there, potentially, so um, the safeguards put up are are not as strong there. And so um, I firmly believe that. I think that there are places in the world where um, the veil is thinner than others. Um, and I think you see some of the evidence of that, especially when it comes to violent horrific crimes
3: well seth that's uh that's very interesting say uh never I've never heard of that story um never heard of that couple, and unfortunately, it's very, very sad um for the girlfriend as well as for Zach and you know, just struggling with the p t s d with the mental illness that he had before that. Yeah, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing.
1: Great story for Halloween. There's nothing better for Halloween. I mean, you come into Halloween, you want to be scared. You know, you want to be, everybody wants to be scared on Halloween. You got death, you have dismemberment, you have uh, paranormal activity, you have...
2: Potential demonic yeah. possession. Voodoo. Oh,
0: what's scarier than something that actually happened that is something that... I don't know that I could have made up a story that was as gruesome as that one. but
2: You mean a story that keeps us all keeping a second and third eye on our significant others? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
3: But I mean, that's kind of, that's also why we wanted to create this podcast, is because of those type of stories. It's like, it just
1: intrigues us. It, you know, kind of keeps us sharp, Right
2: sense. So take care of yourselves,
1: folks. Keep a weathered eye on whoever's in the house with you.
3: Yep. Well, Seth, we're going to have to have you back. We're uh, going to have to get you to tell us another story, maybe something from Moultrie. it be exciting. I want to hear more about this bridge.
2: Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right, everyone, stay safe this Halloween, and we'll see you next time.
3: This episode was produced by Brian McIntyre, Jeremy Thompson, and Joey Thompson, and was recorded at Starscream Studio. Grayson over at Starscream is an incredible producer and engineer, so be sure to visit starscreamstudio.com for all your tracking and recording needs. Additional audio support by Will Compton and original music composed by Nick McClure. Be sure to subscribe, and when you do, drop a line in the comments and say hi. We want to hear your grim stories, too. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.